Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. On this episode of Fraud in America, we take you behind the scenes. At the Anti-Fraud Coalition, we are a coalition of different groups, including nearly 500 whistleblower attorneys. Regularly, we meet in person and online, and recently we sat down with the CEO of Better Markets to discuss the Lehman Brothers collapse of 20 years ago and what has transpired in the financial markets since then. We also discussed the important role that whistleblowers play in uncovering financial fraud schemes. This happened as a closed-door session, but after the session, we realized that the information discussed during the session was so important that we needed to share it with you, the general public. So, we take you behind the scenes at a closed-door session where we discuss with CEO of Better Markets the evolution of the financial markets and the role that whistleblowers play. So we must say, if you are a whistleblower attorney or are interested in becoming a whistleblower attorney, head over to TAF. Dot org to discover how you can, too, join us as part of the coalition. Well, I appreciate everybody joining us live or on recording. We have a, a very uh, interesting talk uh, today. Uh, Dennis Kelleher, he is the uh, co-founder and president and CEO of Better Markets. Um, spend some time over at bettermarkets.org. Uh, you'll see on there a recording of a conference that Dennis organized recently, just a few days ago, for the uh, 15th anniversary of Lehman Brothers collapse. I'm sure many people of a certain age remember that from 2008, uh, 15 years ago. Not everyone in the group probably remembers that. Uh, but the conference had uh, some really notable speakers, including SEC Chair Gary Gensler, uh, Senator Warren was there, uh, CFPB uh, Director Chopra was there, Financial Times commentator. Martin Wolf was there. I watched uh, part of it last night, watched part of it this morning. Um, I had to cancel a call because I got sucked into it. Dennis, it really was uh, an interesting seven-hour long conference. Uh, just really brought it back a, a lot of a lot of memories. I'm sure a lot of people remember the you know the stunning headlines, the market uh, losses, the government bailouts that happened uh, after Lehman Brothers collapsed almost exactly 15 uh, years ago. Um, so, so many lessons learned from that. Uh, the too big to fail mantra of the time, still true, uh, I guess, today. Um, so we asked Dennis to join us, uh, talk about the role that whistleblowers can play in helping uh, stop the next financial collapse from happening. Uh, as I mentioned, he founded uh, Better Markets, founded in 2010. It's been quoted more than 3,000 times, 150 live TV appearances, uh, the Washington Magazine for the third year in a row named him one of Washington's most influential people in banking and finance. Uh, prior to starting Better Markets in 2010, he was chief counsel and senior leadership advisor to the Senate on uh, to the chair of the Senate Democratic Committee uh, Policy Committee. Uh, and then prior to that, he uh, worked at Skadden Arps as an attorney. And then prior to law school at Harvard Law. 
uh, and prior to his undergrad at Brandeis, he served four years of active duty enlisted service to the Air Force as the son of a B-52 pilot. I appreciate your service and <laughs> helping down pilot. So, Dennis, thank you so much. The floor is yours. Well, thanks, um, Jeff. Appreciate that, and thanks for the invitation. Uh, threw, threw, threw together some notes. Um, uh, hopefully, it won't be too scattershot. Um, we're actually been pinned down a little bit lately with uh, you know, just an unbelievable array of things going on in Washington. Uh, usually, in our space, way way below the headlines. You know, the headlines get uh, kind of the latest crazy thing somebody has said, and uh, budget fights, and some of the other things. But uh, uh, the agencies are incredibly active right now. Um, and they've really got uh, us quite busy. But um, nonetheless, uh, you know, you've asked me to talk about the recent banking crisis, and the role of whistleblowers in kind of combating financial fraud, and I'll touch on that. Um, you mentioned that a little bit, but I'll start by giving you a little background on me, uh, then a little background on better markets. Uh, then I'll talk about the recent banking crisis a little bit, as well as touch on the 08 crash uh, and whistleblowers. Um, uh, thank you for mentioning the conference we just held on the 13th of September, which was the 15th anniversary of the crash of Lehman Brothers. We were fortunate enough to have some just unbelievably uh, insightful, thought-provoking experts. We had three separate panels of experts talk about uh, that crisis, too big to fail, um, Dodd-Frank, what's worked and what's not worked in uh, financial reform, the full video of that. Um, is on our website at www.bettermarkets.org. Uh, we're in the process actually of kind of chopping up those seven hours into the different segments so you can dip in and dip out and it, you don't have to kind of sit through it all to try and fast forward and find out where things are. That'll get posted if it hasn't been already pretty quickly. Um, but lots and lots of really fascinating stuff by people who have devoted years uh, to thinking about this, people who are unconflicted, unbiased, unpaid for, unpurchased by Wall Street. Um, and so you really get some interesting views in addition to the policymakers that you mentioned. We kicked off with Senator Warren, uh, who is, as usual, pretty terrific, followed by Martin Wolf, as you mentioned, and then Gary uh, Gensler and uh, Rohit Chopra. Um, but really, lots of meat there. And um, please uh, go to it, dip in, watch it. Uh, people really found it very interesting and helpful. Um, as I said, uh, I've been asked to talk about the crash and whistleblowers, and I'm going to do that, but I want to be clear up front. I'm not an expert on whistleblowers. Um, I know a lot of stuff. I've uh, been around a long time, including whistleblowers and whistleblowing. Um, I've had some experience both when I was at Skadden Arps, lots of experience on the Hill, including the drafting of the provisions in Dodd-Frank. And of course, over the last, um, you know, since 2010 and Dodd-Frank was passed, dealing with the SEC and whistleblowing office and whistleblowing at other places, but I'm definitely not, a, not an expert. And, and uh, of course, we'll be closing, i uh, like to talk about what interests you all, so we'll open up the questions at that point. Uh, quickly on my background, um, it's important to know uh, that I grew up in Worcester, Mass., uh, and lived in the greater Boston area for a long time. So I'm a Red Sox, Patriots, and Bruins fan long before they won anything or were popular. Um, and uh, you're right, uh, I actually enlisted in the Air Force while in high school, and I served four years as a crash rescue firefighter. Uh, it hasn't gone without uh, comment that, uh, frankly, fighting fires has been common throughout my career, although uh, some people have accused me of uh, inability to keep a job. Uh, and it's true that uh, I was fortunate that Brandeis University made an admissions error and let me in. Uh, it's a great, great university where you get a great education. 
um, for those of you, for those of you thinking about it for your kids. Um, you know, Harvard Law School did follow, and I joined Skadden Arps. I had a, a U.S. and European practice. It was litigation focused, but really big corporate scandal focused. Um, through from late 80s through the early 2000s, if you read on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about some major corporate scandal, um, odds were pretty good that I had some significant uh, part in the defense related to some of the big players in those. I specialized in global financial markets, securities, and corporate, corporate conduct. Um, I affectionately say, aka corporate misconduct. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that after a few years uh, at SCADN, I was promoted to partner. Uh, but just as they were slipping on the golden handcuffs, I, I literally quit days later uh, after being promoted to partner to move to Washington to join, to join Senator Kennedy's staff. Uh, I ultimately was uh, honored to serve in three senior staff positions uh, in the United States Senate for three separate senators for almost eight years. Uh, as Jeb alluded to, I worked for Senator Kennedy as a deputy staff director and general counsel on the committee, now known as the HELP Committee. Uh, I worked for Senator Mikulski as, the lead as her leadership advisor, legislative director, and intelligence advisor. I then worked for Senator Dorgan in his leadership capacity as chairman of the Democratic Policy Committee, where I was chief counsel and senior leadership advisor for four plus years, ending in 2010. Uh, my responsibilities included all leadership matters in the Senate and the House, relationships with the White House, all domestic and foreign policy matters, uh, including the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I mentioned that uh, only because uh, the only way uh, you can represent the public interest in Washington is if you know how uh, Washington works. Uh, and that was an education in how Washington works. So I decided to leave after President Obama, leave the Senate, after President Obama signed the Dodd-Frank financial reform law in July of 2010. Uh, unfortunately, the financial industry was ready to fight and win in the regulatory process what they had lost in the legislative process. Uh, they didn't expect to lose as big as they did in the legislative process uh, and weren't about to take that laying down. And in fact, one of the biggest financial industry lobbyists in Washington was asked after the Dodd-Frank Act was signed by President Obama, asking how they reacted to having lost. And, and his response was, lost? This is halftime, baby. Um, and that tells you really everything you have to know about the financial industry. They never view anything as a loss. Everything is halftime. They're going to fight, 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 year in, year out, decade, decade out, to prioritize their interest over the public interest. Uh, and at the time, there was no organization with substantive expertise that could go up against J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and the rest of Wall Street. And so um, I decided to found one to fight Wall Street in the trenches of the agencies. And luckily, I met a very public-spirited philanthropist named Mike Masters, who was, not ironically, but importantly, a hedge fund manager from Atlanta. He was involved in trying to educate legislators about Wall Street's manipulation of the commodity markets actually starting in 2007, before the crash. And that's when I first got to know him. Uh, when the crash happened, he became an invaluable resource to Congress during the financial reform process, because unfortunately, uh, Congress was relying almost entirely on the people on Wall Street to inform them about what Wall Street had done and how to better regulate them. Kind of like asking a bank robber how to stop future bank robberies. Not exactly the best way to approach things. 
Um, but that brings me to Better Markets. Mark and I decided, I'm sorry, Mike and I decided to co-found Better Markets. He was going to fund it and chair the board, and I was going to create it and run it. And we founded it in October of 2010. Remember, Dodd-Frank was signed by President Obama in July of 2010. We founded Better Markets in October of 2010. And I want to say that while I'm the face of the organization and I get all the attention along with our staff, there would be no Better Markets without Mike Masters' vision, passion, commitment, and fearlessness. As I'm sure many of you know, it is not easy to be a member of the financial industry and then found and fund an organization to hold that industry accountable to the public interest. Uh, but Mike did that and much more. And our idea was actually for a unique organization. Um, we hired experts in securities, derivatives, commodities, banking, consumer protection. Many had public and private sector experience. All knew Washington pretty well, especially how it really works, where the power is, who really has it, how uh, to influence it and get results. Now, I find it kind of interesting. It's not exactly a secret. As I tell people, all you have to do is watch what the industry does because they're incredibly effective and do that just for the good guys. Um, so with that, let me take a, a minute to discuss better markets theory of change. The problem as we see it is that the economy no longer works for the vast majority of Americans because among other things, the financial system is too often a wealth extraction mechanism for the few rather than a wealth creation system for the many. And this is because the financial sector uses its economic power to buy political power, which it then uses throughout the Washington policymaking process to both protect and increase its economic power, usually at the expense of everybody else. And finance thereby undermines and corrupts democracy by hijacking the government to serve its own ends. Now, making matters worse, finance and the financial system are not well understood outside of the financial industry, uh, but nonetheless, it affects every single American with a job, a home, a credit, a debit card, a, a, a checking or savings account, a personal loan, you name it, any financial transaction of any type. But the industry uses this lack of knowledge and their expertise as a weapon uh, to confuse and intimidate anyone from effectively opposing them in the political and policymaking process. And that's really what enables them to bend the laws, rules, regulations, and policies, including on the enforcement side, um, to their benefit, often with no one watching, knowing, or understand. Um, and these are the fundamental reasons why the political, economic, and financial systems no longer work for the vast majority of Americans. And so the solution, as Better Market sees it, and our theory of change is reflected in what I developed called the arc of advocacy, which is a comprehensive integrated approach to policymaking. And that's where Better Market's professional staff applies their procedural and substantive expertise in economics, banking, securities, derivatives, um, to people in power throughout the policymaking cycle in Washington. And we do that focused on protecting and promoting the economic security opportunity and prosperity of the American people while opposing Wall Street in its attempt to put their profits over the public interest and holding it accountable. And so we hope Better Markets is thereby an effective and powerful counterweight to finance generally and Wall Street's biggest financial institutions in particular. As I like to say, change is certain, but progress is not. 
Change happens whenever people in power exercise that power. But progress only happens when those people exercise that power to serve the public interest. And better markets exist to make progress by getting those in power to serve the public interest. And our goals are pretty simple, uh, to create and support guardrails, gatekeepers, and guard dogs, uh, to ensure the financial sector serves society by supporting the real productive economy that generates jobs and broad-based economic growth. Uh, frankly, rather than just enriching financiers on Wall Street, destabilizing the financial system, draining public resources for their own benefit, and frankly, unleashing predators on consumers and investors. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do. Um, as Jeb mentioned a little bit, we've been involved in about 400 rulemakings, dozens of litigations, dozens of congressional hearings, many more briefings, many hundreds of meetings, literally every year. You know, all supported by a robust media operation, which, as you know, you really need to fight to get fair reporting on the non-industry side of everything. And that's why we spend so much time focused on the media. Uh, and Jeb mentioned some of those results uh, earlier in terms of TV appearances and quotes. But it's all us just fight. We're not trying to get our name in the paper. We're trying to fight for some balance in the public debate and the public reporting on these key issues. So now let me turn to the recent banking crisis a little bit um, and hit on the 2008 crash. Uh, the banking crisis of 2023 was the result of deregulation and gutting supervision during the Trump in, in administration. Uh, and look, you know, this wasn't a secret. It was done in the open. It was openly bragged about. It was openly bragged about by President Trump, uh, who it should be mentioned again, because sometimes it's forgotten, who appointed, literally appointed the president of Goldman Sachs to be in charge of national economic policy. He appointed the president of Goldman Sachs to be his chairman of the National Economic Council, whose office was literally doors away from the Oval Office. And that signaled to everybody what was about to happen, and that's what happened. Um, sure, they said it was about getting rid of burdensome regulation and efficiency and motherhood and apple pie. Uh, but it was about deregulating banks and other financial institutions so that they could boost their profits. This meant taking down some of the safeguards that were put in place after the crash during the Obama administration. And this was no secret either. You know, better markets and a few other lonely voices opposed every one of those deregulations during the Trump administration, but so didn't people like Senator Warren, uh, FDIC board member Marty Groomberg. Uh, Fed, Federal Reserve Governor Brainerd, um, we all did oppose them in often detailed writings throughout the Trump administration. Um, I won't go over all that, but we issued a report uh, on dated March 27th, 2023, uh, that detailed uh, the deregulation under supervision and gutting of supervision that happened during Trump across the board and how that directly led to uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the contagion that it caused. And that's on our website. Again, I'll mention it, www.bettermarkets.org, where there is a vast amount of information on all of this. Now, of course, many of the same conduct that caused the 2023 banking crisis also caused the 2008 crash. And let me start by saying, because people, uh, some people like to say there's been some amnesia. Uh, it's not amnesia. It's um, reality obscured by purchased propaganda 
and Wall Street and financial industry mouthpieces repeating things that they know are not true. But the 2008 crash was the worst crash since the great crash of 1929. And it caused the worst economy since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, Better Markets issued a report on the cost of the crisis, which showed that it was going to cost more than 20 trillion, with a T, 20 trillion dollars in lost GDP and counting when we released it in 2018. It's called, I think it's called the cost of the crisis. Now, as is well known, much of that was caused by just blatant, outright, egregious lawbreaking. Now, sure, some of it was recklessness, some of it was negligence, some of it was bad management, some of it was wishful thinking, but at its core, it resulted from massive widespread fraud. Basically, lying, cheating, and stealing as the primary business practice uh, of the biggest financial institutions in this country. I won't dwell on the details of that now, other than to say that Better Markets has compiled a, a number of reports that we update periodically, and we call it the, rap, the Wall Street Rap Sheet. Uh, the previous rap sheets are on our website. Uh, we act actually have a draft literally on my screen right now uh, of an updated version of that that's going to be coming out in the coming weeks. But it tracks almost all of the major legal actions and proceedings against the six biggest Wall Street banks going back more than 20 years. Um, we divided that into three buckets. We looked at their um, law-breaking pre-crash before 2008. We then looked at their law-breaking uh, in connection with the crash of 2008. And we've looked at their law-breaking since the crash of 2008. Uh, it will come as no surprise to the people watching this and who are in the business of making sure whistleblowers uh, are protected and successful. Uh, but the law-breaking has been going up. Uh, many people think, oh, the banks all started behaving because it was such a bad crash and they learned their lesson. Uh, yeah, I'm sure nobody on uh, on this uh, webinar uh, thinks that. And I'm sure it's no surprise to you that our rap sheet report, uh, every time when we initially put it out and since then, shows a shockingly long list of the banks breaking virtually every rule and law over and over and over again. Uh, their rap sheets would make Al Capone jealous. Um, he never even dreamed of, of getting away with what they've got away with. And of course, they're getting away with it because they get little slaps on the wrist. Uh, they're called fines that are, that are a pittance that aren't even a cost of doing business. Uh, there's really never any real punishment or anything that could actually deter any of them from committing more crimes. Actually, in our view, um, the enforcement, quote unquote, of the law uh, is so pathetic that it actually incentivizes more crime. Because if it doesn't meaningfully punish hardly anyone ever, um, and certainly never executives, officers, or supervisors, a rational person should conclude that crime pays. Um, and unfortunately, that's the lesson that's too often learned by the financial industry. Let me jump to whistleblower programs. Um, and I'll start with the SEC whistleblower program. Uh, as I'm sure everybody knows, 
pre-crash, uh, there, were, there were several, but one very prominent, uh, persistent uh, Madoff whistleblower uh, who the SEC refused to listen to repeatedly, even though he had data and information that should have led any reasonable person uh, to engage in a very aggressive, thorough investigation. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, and even though the Madoff Ponzi scheme should have been obvious to anyone who scratched the surface, um, the SEC refused to do that over and over again. And the post-Madoff uh, uh, examinations, investigations, and report really make it clear how easy it would have been uh, to discover Madoff. And so the failure and dereliction of duty of the SEC uh, before Madoff was discovered, ignoring everything else that would have just required them to, you know, do their job on a regular basis, uh, pre-crash, uh, really lit a fire uh, that enabled us to put a very strong whistleblower program at the SEC into law in the Dodd-Frank financial reform law. Um, now, sure, the industry hates whistleblowers and hated the idea of this program and lobbied incredibly hard to make sure it didn't happen, or if it happened, it didn't have any teeth. Um, but of course, the SEC, not of course, but I guess uh, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not. The SEC didn't want a whistleblower program either, uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and notwithstanding the opposition of the financial industry, and frankly, the opposition of the SEC, um, there was uh, a carefully constructed um, whistleblower program in Dodd-Frank, creating the office of the whistleblower and the program itself, um, carefully constructed, and it's been wildly successful. It allows for substantial monetary awards, it ensures confidentiality. It prohibits retaliation. Uh, Better Markets has put out a lot of materials on the SEC whistleblower program and rules, including um, what I think is a pretty important report that we put out in 2020 entitled, and this is the actual title, The SEC's Whistleblower Program, A $2 Billion Success Story Under Threat. Uh, it was a $2 billion success story in 2020 I haven't counted it up again, and we're going to do an update to that, but in my guess, it's a $3 billion success story now. Think about that. How many six, $3 billion success stories are out there that nobody's heard of? Well, the SEC whistleblower program is one of them. It costs taxpayers nothing. It has returned billions of dollars to ripped off investors. It has unearthed, uncovered, and exposed corporate crimes that are shockingly unimaginably broad, deep, and important. Um, and no surprise, corporate America and Wall Street hates it. Notwithstanding that, it's been successful. So of course, Trump's deregulators at the SEC were only too happy to undermine it for, for the industry. Um, however, because of how the statute was constructed, uh, they couldn't kill it. But they did pass some rules to weaken and undermine it, and better markets fought them like crazy at the time during the Trump administration. Um, but nonetheless, they passed some laws that weakened it. Uh, the good news is that once Biden won and the public interest actually became the concern of the SEC again, not the profits of the financial industry, uh, new rules were passed that largely reversed um, the weakening. Now, I'm not saying... Um, 
those uh, new rules were perfect. And truthfully, I'm not saying that the SEC whistleblower program is perfect either. Um, everything, frankly, there ain't nothing in Washington that's perfect, as you all know. Um, but it's an extremely good program. It's been extremely effective and successful. And in addition to you all um, making sure whistleblowers get the full benefit of that program, the SEC whistleblower program needs your support and advocacy um, in the public arena and in the rulemaking arena, because it is always under threat by the industry, which hates it. It's in good hands today, but it's not always the case, as we saw during the Trump administration. So please put on your agenda, not just using the whistleblower program as intended and making sure whistleblowers get their fair due, fair hearing and the results. But you also need to be advocating for the SEC whistleblower office. Um, let me quickly turn to non-SEC whistleblower programs at the other financial regulatory agencies. Um, and I'm mindful of the time. I know I was asked to talk for an incredibly long time. I'm not going to talk as long as I was asked to. Um, you can all relax. Um, I do want to get to your questions, which I think are going to be uh, more informative maybe than a monologue, uh, hopefully more informative than a monologue. Um, only the CFTC has a program anything like the SEC whistleblower program. But the CFTC is a much smaller agency uh, with its own set of problems, frankly, including a uh, a less than perfectly constructed whistleblower program. The SEC program was, uh, as it was drafted in the statute, uh, was extremely effective because it limited uh, the SEC's ability uh, to weaken that program or uh, work around it or process it other than as it had, in had been intended. Because of course, we didn't, when we were drafting Dodd-Frank, we didn't trust the SEC to actually do the right thing. So the statute was constructed and written quite carefully to make sure uh, that their duties and obligations could not be avoided. Uh, the CFTC did not uh, get as much attention, unfortunately. Uh, it's a good program, uh, but it was because of a flaw in the construction, it almost had to stop making awards. And believe it or not, it almost had to lay off uh, the staff of its own whistleblower program office. Uh, and that needed a legislative fix at the beginning of the Biden administration. And thankfully, that um, that got done relatively quickly on a bipartisan basis. I have to say elsewhere, the whistleblower programs are more form than reality. Um, for the most part, yes, there are some program, or there, I think there is at least the form of a program everywhere. But the question, of course, as you know, is are they real, meaningful, and supported by the leadership of those agencies? Now, that's particularly important if, if these those agencies are not under strict, clear, specific statutory mandates like the SEC. Because if they don't have the benefit of strict, clear, specific statutory mandates, then it's largely discretionary. And that means it depends upon the leadership of those agencies. And so the answer to the question, are the other programs at the other financial regulatory agencies real, meaningful, and supported by the leadership of those agencies? Well, the short answer is no. Um, we could talk about them in more detail. Um, uh, and uh, you know, as I say, I'm not an expert on them either, uh, but we can discuss them if you want. Um, but the, the bottom line is uh, the SEC program is the gold standard and the key program. Uh, the next one that is really valuable and, and being implemented finally 
you know, quite aggressively and effectively is the CFTC. Uh, and then there's the banking agencies, uh, many of which are kind of conflicted and captured, um, you know, viewing, unfortunately, the Federal Reserve often views the biggest banks on Wall Street in the financial industry as their kind of clients and collaborators, uh, rather than um, uh, people who are hell-bent on breaking the law and maximizing profits almost regardless of anything else, including the very survival of their firms. Um, today's bonuses are the most important thing. Uh, the next most important thing uh, is today's bonuses. And what comes third after that is today's bonuses. I don't, I don't know where uh, the public interest comes in, but it's pretty low down when you consider that even the survival of their very organization uh, is not very high. Uh, on their list of priorities all too often. Not always, but all too often. So let me uh, say two things in quickly in conclusion and then kick it back to Jeb or whoever I'm kicking it back to for questions. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that there's tons of material materials on our website, uh, www.bettermarkets.org, uh, on the whistleblower program, on Too Big to Jail, uh, in addition to too big to fail on crime on wall street we track it pretty closely we comment on it often uh, we've done that in connection with for example um, the major settlements that relate to the major banks whether it's the jp morgan chase 13 billion dollar settlement uh, which was a fraud on the public uh, which was done i think in 2013 it was so egregious um, Better Markets actually sued the Department of Justice and the Attorney General Eric Holder uh, for its sweetheart deal uh, that, that, that Eric Holder cut in his office with J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, uh, over which there's been almost zero, maybe zero, but if not zero, almost zero public disclosure information about any of that. Uh, they got away with um, committing crime, egregious, unbelievable crimes. And even to this day, we have no idea what they are because it was swept under the rug by a sweetheart deal that was cut in the back rooms. And we sued J.P. Morgan, I'm sorry, we sued the Department of Justice and Eric Holder personally uh, over its sweetheart settlement with J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, there'd be no surprise to you that we lost on the standing grounds, uh, but we raised a lot of key issues that got a lot of media attention. We follow all of the, those, including the most recent criminal uh, proceedings against J.P. Morgan Chase and connected with the manipulation of the metals market and the treasuries market. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase has now pled guilty criminal, to criminal charges. I can't remember. It's either four or five times. I think it's five. Uh, we track that. Um, uh, as well as, for example, Goldman Sachs's record, uh, including the unbelievable global crime spree enabled by Goldman Sachs's um, floating of bonds and the 1MDB scandal, uh, where they too had to plead guilty to a criminal charge. But once again, the sweetheart deal cut just as the Trump Department of Justice was leaving. Uh, the sweetheart deal had the Goldman Malaysia subsidiary plead guilty uh, to minimize the impact of that criminal plea on Goldman Sachs. Uh, we did a major report on uh, Goldman Sachs's involvement in the global crime spree, uh, popularly known as 1MDB. Uh, and we track all of those things. 
Um, in addition to kind of collecting them in the rap sheet, as I referred to earlier, there's materials on all of those things on our website. Secondly, uh, and finally, I do want to mention that uh, Better Markets is a 501c3. And we were lucky that we had uh, Mike Masters to fund us for the first couple of years and still is a financial supporter as well as chairman of the board. But um, we can't do what we do without the public um, making charitable donations to Better Markets. We depend on public donations. We would not exist. Um, and I'll tell you, um, we need your help because opposing Wall Street and their many Washington allies is not very popular. Um, people do not get up in the morning thinking what I want to do is fight Wall Street and their army of lobbyists and purchased allies in Washington and elsewhere. So uh, I want to end by saying uh, thanks for inviting me, but please, when you consider supporting charitable organizations, you consider making a donation to Better Markets. Uh, we're not a C4. We don't lobby. We're a pure C3. Um, and without public support, uh, we wouldn't exist and be able to fight Wall Street, hold them accountable, and try and defend the public interest. So thank you for what you do. Uh, let us know if we can be helpful. Look at the website for a resource. If there's something in particular you need help with, uh, email us. I don't know. Um, I guess there's a press at bettermarkets.org email. And there may even, there's a, there's a way to do an inquiry on our website. So uh, feel free to email us. Um, happy to be helpful when we can. Uh, and the only thing I'll say in closing is um, kudos to you because the people who support, promote, protect whistleblowers are absolutely fundamental and critical to the ability of the United States to hold corporations, financial institutions accountable. And without whistleblowers, the public interest would not be served and the crime spree would be even worse than it currently is. So with that, I'll hand it back to Jeb. Dennis, I appreciate that. Uh, folks, if you have questions, uh, if you could put it in the Q&A uh, box. Uh, yeah, Dennis, before uh, law school in the 90s, I was at JP Morgan, so you're speaking some of my, uh, some of my language here. <laughs> Uh, you, you mentioned some of the uh, possible concerns. Uh, the one that always frustrates me, and I, and I, certainly for a lot of our clients, is that you know at the end of the day they might write a check, but nobody's wearing orange. You know, people that uh, were the masterminds of the fraud oftentimes get promoted. Um, you mentioned too big to jail. What, what can we do about that issue? So that's a good question. Um, I spend an enormous amount of time on this um, going back to the beginning. Well, actually, even when I was working in the Senate. Um, and then since we founded Better Markets, uh, you know, it's one of the most egregious um, uh, aspects of our legal system in America is we have a two-tier justice system. Um, if you're a big financial institution, the laws don't apply to you. They don't get enforced against you. You know, if you're a community bank and you break a technical violation, they bring the hammer down. But if you're on Wall Street, you can break the law over and over and over again. And unfortunately, uh, nobody wants to get serious about that for a lot of different reasons. A big part of it is the revolving door. Many of these people at the Department of Justice and the SEC are literally deciding how bad should I punish who are going to be my future clients paying me. Now, I want to make it clear. There are literally thousands of hardworking, dedicated people at the Department of Justice, the SEC, and elsewhere who put the public interest first and fight hard. But they are often undermined 
by the leadership of these institutions who go through the revolving door. And even if they're not corrupt in the big C sense, they're corrupt in the small C sense because they're sitting there. I love this, you know, during the Obama administration, the people that ran the Department of Justice, before they got there, they were corporate defense lawyers. And then they're at the Department of Justice, the head of the criminal division, who sits there and criminal defense or corporate defense lawyers are sitting there making the very same arguments he was making weeks before. And so nobody should be surprised that he finds those arguments incredibly persuasive. And it's no surprise that what did he do when he left? He went back to be a corporate white collar defense lawyer, where he found the arguments incredibly persuasive once again. And so the revolving door is a major problem. But it's also the problem, Eric Holder said this when he's attorney general, they're too big to fail. If we enforce the law against them, they might collapse. It will cause all these problems. We can't do that. So that is the connection between too big to fail and too big to jail. And I have to tell you, I, you know, as recently I was on the um, Biden-Harris transition team, and even during the transition, um, there was a lot of discussion about what to do about um, holding white-collar corporate criminals, not just on Wall Street, because they're not just on Wall Street, as you all know, um, actually accountable. How do you punish them and deter them? And there was a lot done there, and there's been a lot done since, but mostly at the Department of Justice. And I've been at a bunch of meetings over there, um, been involved in a lot of these discussions. Unfortunately, most what they do is they think about what can we do to incentivize corporations not to break the law? And frankly, you know, it wasn't appreciated. But what I keep saying is, what you can do most to reduce corporate crime is to start throwing some executives and supervisors and officers in jail. Now, if you can't do that for whatever reason, and I'm not saying it's easy prosecuting uh, white collar crime. It isn't. It's difficult. The system is set up to make sure this layer is insulated from accountability, right? Um, L, you know, LTL is the major item in every corporation, let's talk live, no paper, no paper goes to the executive, no paper goes to the supervisor, right? We don't want a paper trail because then they'll get us, right? Okay, so I say, if you can't put them in jail, then what you should do, the second best thing, if you wanna really stop the crime spree, is take away their money. They do it for the money. When they're done, make them penniless, bar them from the industry, Take all their money. And I don't mean I, I don't mean claw back. Yes, claw back. But if you claw back, basically you're back to where you were before. You don't get the upside, but no, you got to claw back. You got to fine them. You got to take every piece of compensation. Um, and they won't do it. They think, well, what can we do to incentivize them? I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't worry about the carrot. You don't need a carrot if you use your stick. If you don't use your stick, don't talk to me about carrots. You don't have carrots big enough. <laughs> because they get a lot of money for this. And most the most recent disappointing example is Carrie Tolstead, the one and only person who was criminally prosecuted in connection with the entire Wells Fargo scandal. Now, we've put out massive materials. We did big reports on what, you know, on our website, if anybody's interested. But Carrie Tolstead was a direct report to the CEO Stumpf at Wells Fargo. And Everything that happened happened in her lane. I think everything, if not everything, almost within her lane over 15 years. They had a law breaking business for 15 years. It was involved thousands of employees. It went across numerous states 
And they all got rich during those years, right? And then right before this scandal was becoming public, scandal became public in September of um, 2016. In July of 2016, lo and behold, Carrie Tolstead's leaving Wells Fargo, coincidentally. And what does she get? She gets a $125 million exit package just days before the scandal goes public. Well, now, what is she? She's the direct report to the CEO. Okay, so what is standing between the CEO and every, oh, her. So she gets 125 million bucks on the way out the door. I don't know about you. I don't know if it is. I've got a suspicious mind. It looks like hush money. I don't know, call me crazy, okay? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know, looks that way. Okay, out the door she goes. Here we are, 2023. That happened in 2016, right? Yeah. 2023, she just pled out. She pled to the most minor possible violation, which is not properly disclosing to the regulators something. Now, I think you should disclose things publicly. Your obligation to the regulators, tell them. But out of everything in the criminal and civil law, that's the only thing they could come up with. And she's the only one. And by the way, I do find it at least noteworthy She's like a woman and one of the most senior women in banking in an industry where women are represented by like this. So out of all the lawbreakers, every they find one person happens to be a woman. Um, and at, from 2016, it takes them to 2023, one minor charge, and she gets sentenced to six months home confinement. And as I said publicly, it's like saying to a, a fifth grader who misbehaved, go to your room. She was sent to her room. Her punishment was to go to. Now, I can, I don't know this, but I'm assuming that room is in a mansion. So, <laughs> sure she, so not only did she get 125 million bucks going out the door, she got tens and tens of millions of dollars before that. Let's just round it and say she got about 200 million over the years, right? So what's happened since then? Now, it is true. They clawed back a bunch of money. They find a bunch of money. Um, she got a $100,000 fine in connection, by the way, with being sent to her room. 100,000, right? She, I mean, that's couch cushion money, right? You know, what do you find in your couch? Oh, there's a quarter. Well, you know, if you're these people, it's like, oh, 100,000 here, 100,000 there. It's like 10 bucks to you. I mean, it's crazy. So out of all that money, if you add up everything you get taken away, it's, it's hard to know because I haven't gone back and done it and it's not all public and it's not exactly clear where it came back. But net net looks like she got about $100 million left. Um, now, I don't know what her tax rate is. I don't know what her tax planning and financial plans are. But let's go crazy and say she only has 10% of that and she only has 20 million. Well, what are you telling people, first of all, if Wells Fargo could do what they did for that long, that egregiously, and in 2023, seven years later, they go after one person who gets sent to her room and gets to keep tens of millions of dollars. Now it is true, she did have to plead criminally, that's true, and she's on probation, Ooh. right? Okay, and she did have to pay some money back, but if they're not penniless, then the prosecutors and regulators haven't done their job and they're sending the wrong message. You know, the message that they send is crime pays. Crime pays. If you're a white collar guy at a big bank, now, if you're a white collar woman at a big bank, you've got higher risk. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're, you know, there are 4,700, roughly 4,700 banks in the United States. There are 34 with more than $100 billion in assets. And 
why as the policy of the United States have we decided that those 34 and the big shots, the rich, well-connected, wealthy big shots there, they get special justice treatment, no justice at all. Mm. Everybody else gets the book thrown at them. And so that's the lay, and that you can, I don't want to pick on Carrie. She ain't alone. You could go to J.P. Morgan Chase and go through that. Now, the good news is that J.P. Morgan Chase, and they actually recently, DOJ, to their credit, went after the individuals, the head, they went after three offices, I think it was three, maybe five offices, two pled out, three got prosecuted, um, and they're going to jail. They're actually going to go to jail. Now, they're all on appeal, and who knows what's going to happen there, but they at least got convicted and got sentenced to jail. Um, Goldman Sachs, one MDB, absolutely nothing. What happens? The SEC throws the book, and same thing with Citigroup a number of years ago. They throw the book at minnows while the whales swim off to their big mansions. They're, they're on their private planes to their mansions in Aspen, the Hamptons, in Europe. Those people, the law doesn't apply. And the public sees this. Everybody sees this. And it's unfair. It's wrong. It's a violation of the fundamental principles of capitalism. It's a violation of the basic rules of justice. And every time it happens, somebody ought to be calling their senator and representative and saying, this is outrageous. Change the law. Change the people. But this can't go on. And yet here we are. Uh, it just happens again and again. And that's why we track it. That's why we talk about it. Um, that's why before the uh, the recent sentencing in the J.P. Morgan Chase Metals case, we put out a brief, like put out a memo to the me media about three or four days ahead of time saying, hey, don't forget, this is happening. I got to tell you, everybody's like, oh, is that happening? When's that? We're in Chicago? You're kidding. <laughs> no. I mean, just getting people to pay attention to this because it's like, oh, yeah, there's another they're breaking the law again. No kidding. Sorry. Right. Um, it's something yeah, that yeah. spent so, a lot of time on. We we, uh, we get questions about the CFB, uh, CFPB program uh, or agency from time to time, including, you know, why don't they have a whistleblower program? Uh, any, any thoughts on that? I know this is something Senator Warren has talked about uh, publicly. So, you know, um, getting effective whistleblower programs enacted into statute are one of the most difficult things imaginable. Amen. Um, you know, uh, the... Corporate America, the Chamber of Commerce, Wall Street sees this as a direct threat to the executive office. It's it's as it's it's as important on the their priority list as anything that touches their compensation, yep. right? Um, and so it's very difficult to do. Um, you know, as I say, we really got the opportunity because in during Dodd Frank because of the outrageous high profile Madoff uh, dereliction of duty in connection with a literally a whistleblower who kept having the door slammed in his face. Um, so they, we need them at every financial agency. As I say, the SEC one proves how incredibly valuable and successful it can be. Um, and the CFTC is, is catching up, albeit smaller because they're not really comparable. Um, and so, and Senator Warren has been outstanding on this, but so has, this is a bipartisan issue. Senator Grassley from Iowa, um, yep. there's plenty of Republicans who believe in this. Unfortunately, there's too many um, people in Washington who are purchased by the industry who are making sure these things don't happen. So support, we're a 501c3, we don't lobby, so we don't support bills. I don't even know what the bills are that are out there in connection with this, but people should support them, particularly your organization. As I say, 
those bills need support, but even the programs themselves and the agencies that have them need support. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you mentioned um, <laughs> you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank, and of course, I guess it was Signature Bank that collapsed about that same time. But uh, so when it happened, I was thinking, oh, here's 08 again. <laughs> now it's going to be this dominoes, but that didn't that didn't happen. Any thoughts on why that didn't happen? Why that domino effect didn't play out? Well, I think the, the number one reason it didn't happen is because um, many of the provisions of Dodd-Frank are in place. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it this way, we are in much, much, the financial system is much, much more resilient than it was in 2008. But I want to caution people. That doesn't mean it's as resilient as it should be. That doesn't mean that the protections are in place or adequate. They are not. Um, if I If you were to ask me, um, how far along we are, we're probably half the way to where we really need to be to have a financial system regulated in a way that forces it to, to support the productive economy, the real economy, rather than the swing for the fences gambling that endangers the country. Um, but we are, have made substantial progress, and that has got a lot to do with why the contagion wasn't worse. Um, the contagion also wasn't worse because of the action that the Biden administration took uh, in connection with taking over Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, um, and ultimately um, brokering the First Republic uh, takeover by J.P. Morgan Chase. I will say those were incredibly imperfect bailouts. They have thus far um, stemmed the contagion, but they have created more moral hazard. They bailed out the banks when they should have taken other action, in my view. And literally, and this really... I've been, I keep saying this to people and showing the picture because some newspaper um, got the photo. On the day the FDIC took over Silicon Valley Bank, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was arriving at his home in Hawaii, his multi-million dollar home in Hawaii. So I forget what it is. It's something like $10 billion, $20 billion Silicon Valley Bank is going to cost uh, the American people in bailouts. Now, yes, it's a charge to the deposit insurance fund that's paid for by the banks, but the banks aren't cutting their CEO bonuses by that amount. They're going to push the, that amount out on, you know, through fees and services. Basically, we're all going to pay for that. But literally, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was at his multi-million dollar waterfront home in Hawaii while his bank was being taken over because he was reckless. So taking, you know, the Biden administration took the actions they believed they had to take to stem the contagion, to prevent dominoes from falling, to prevent a larger crisis. But unfortunately, every time that happens, you actually um, water the seeds of the next crisis. And at some point, there aren't going to be enough um, enough mechanisms and things that can be done uh, to prevent that. And what we need is much more, the banks need much more capital. That's the, one of the biggest fights we have right now is over capital. The reason the banks don't have more capital is because capital is inversely related to bank bonuses. Mm. So if banks have more capital, their bonuses are based on leverage. More yeah. capital means less leverage. Less leverage means smaller CEO bonuses. And that's why they go to the mattresses to fight any capital increase. That's what's going on now. But capital is the most important thing to protect the financial system, the economy, and the American people. So it's great for Main Street, really bad for Wall Street, 
and most bad for Wall Street CEOs, and that's why they're fighting it. So we've got a long way to go to actually be in a point, be at a place where the system is act, the, the economy and regular Americans are protected enough. Um, but the Biden administration did what they could do. They built on a foundation of Dodd-Frank that's better than it was before, not as good as it has to be, and we're keeping fighting to get to where we've got to go. So, of course, one of the things that wasn't around in 08, um, cryptocurrencies, uh, digital assets. Uh, we had a webinar yesterday on this topic. Next month's uh, Lunch and Learn will be on that topic with some of our thought leaders. Uh, any thoughts on that? You know, what that, how we can do a better job of regulating what we can regulate in that area and what role whistleblowers can play in that? So, uh, you know, we have been um, number one critics of crypto for years now. We were the leading critics of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried attempted to bribe us with a million dollars or more to support his predatory proposal at the CFTC. I think we're the only ones in Washington, D.C. who didn't take his money and said, you're a predator. You want to rip. I mean, his entire business model was based on eliminating investor, consumer, and financial stability protections. Anytime you eliminate or reduce investor consumer financial stability protections, you can increase your profits. The problem is it's at the expense of everybody else. That was his entire business model. How all these pe brilliant people in the United States could think this genius, we, he came into our office for about an hour and a half. It took about 20 minutes. And we're going, who the hell did all these other people meet with that thought this guy was a genius? He's a predator. Um, uh, we, we, we didn't end up being very popular with him or his allies, including the head of uh, the CFTC, who we fought also on this. So we've been crypto critics from the beginning. Our view is that, you know, basically, first of all, it's a lawless industry. Its entire business model is lawless. It is, we're not going to comply with the securities laws or the commodity laws like every other law-abiding financial business in America. We want our own laws that basically have the form of regulation without the reality of it. So they had a two-prong attack. One is try and get their buddies at the regulatory agencies, mostly the CFTC, to treat them special. And then they're going to try to buy as many politicians as possible to get Congress to pass their special interest legislation that literally they wrote. Um, but they, look, in 14 years, they have not come up with one single legitimate use case for crypto. Its only use case proved over and over again is money laundering, tax evasion, helping narco-terrorists, rogue states. Um, this, it was designed to be untraceable. You know, ransomware, people read, oh, my school system, my water system, my bank held up by ransomware. There'd be no ransomware without crypto. Thank crypto for that. So they have zero um, social use, legitimate use, and they the all the laws that currently exist that apply to you or anybody the smallest two person broker dealer in in Poughkeepsie has to comply with the law and the entire crypto industry says not us we want special treatment better market says no you follow the law and until you come up with a use case then you all should continue to be prosecuted and sued uh, to protect investors I mean investors have lost trillions of dollars. It, it's interesting that there have not been, to my knowledge, more whistleblowers in the crypto space. Um, but I think that's because, um, you know, they're they're all in it. It's one of the there are very few whistleblowers on Wall Street, too. Sure. Um, and the people in there who could blow the whistle are usually making too much money to be blowing the whistle, as you all know. 
But uh, crypto is a criminal enterprise that is uh, not only a threat to the financial system and economy, uh, but is a threat to uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands and millions of investors. Mm. Uh, later today, I'm meeting with, uh, as part of our coalition, we have uh, a group of whistleblowers uh, who are help guiding us on how to get the word out, how to encourage more whistleblowers to step forward. Uh, Harry, part of that group you've been made off, uh, as is Sharon Watkins and Cynthia Cooper. Um, how can we use the experiences of future or, or past whistleblowers to encourage future whistleblowers on Wall Street to step forward? So as you know, um, you have to have a spine of steel and be incredibly brave to be a whistleblower because the institution is going to come after you really, really hard. You're putting at risk your career, um, your financial stability. Most of these people have families, houses, kids, schools, wives, husbands, um, partners. Um, it takes incredibly brave people to do the right thing under enormous, enormous pressure. Uh, and they are real heroes, as, as most of your coalition probably knows. And as most other people don't know what it really takes to be a whistleblower, you have to be willing to endure hell uh, too often. And that's why uh, the SEC program was written the way it was, to guarantee confidentiality, uh, to have outsized rewards to make up for that, to incentivize people to take those risks. Um, frankly, my view is uh, that you have to, and I don't know how you get before these people, but there needs to be a public, uh, basically a public service campaign uh, run uh, targeted to the financial industry and crypto. So when you see a crypto ad, you ought to see an ad that says, you know, if you know they're ripping people off, you can make more money as a whistleblower than you'll ever make in crypto. And by the way, in crypto, it's you're not really going to make any money because sooner or later you're getting ripped off too. Um, yes, there are the stories, the anecdotal stories of people who got rich in crypto. But for every person who gets rich in crypto, there by definition has to be a whole bunch of people who lost. It's a zero sum game. Um, and so to me, the um, important provisions to incentivize, which is to say those provisions that protect and reward whistleblowers, just simply have to be better disseminated, more high profile, more frequency, and more targeted. I mean, there ought to be ads all over Wall Street and an and Ameri and American banker in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and in all the rags that those people read that say, hey, see wrongdoing, big rewards, call 1-800-WHISTLEBLOWER. I don't know. I'm making that up. Yeah. Um, but I just think the, now part of the problem, you know, is that the financial industry propaganda because of their deep pockets overwhelms anything else. But I think that's really the only way because I think whistleblowers on their own, we know this from whistleblowers who have become public, you know, the half a dozen or so major ones during the 08 crash and a bunch of them since then. We know that they're alone. They're in the middle of an organization where the pressure is just inconceivable. And so for them to kind of be able to stand up and step out of that uh, and put the public interest and the victims first, they need to know, and it's not illegitimate, they need to know that they're not going to get exposed, kicked to the curb, and not protected. Now, the problem is those risks are there. They could be exposed and kicked to the curb and not protected. Um, but they should know that there are at least people and mechanisms in place 
to to either eliminate that or try and reduce it. That's on the downside. And then, of course, there's the upside reward. And we tried to address both of those things in the Dodd-Frank Act for the SEC whistleblower program. It's, it, as I say, it's unfortunately less robust and effective elsewhere. But I think that mix of kind of the protection on the downside and the incentive on the upside is not well known. And even truthfully, when well known, there's not going to be a lot of people who are going to be brave enough with, I don't mean that as personal as that, but to really have the steel that it takes to step up. But boy, we need them. And one of the, we had a big discussion about this during Dodd-Frank, and we talk about it later. One of the problems with guaranteeing confidentiality for very important reasons is we don't have a lot of people that we can hold up to the public and say, here's, you know, Mr. or Ms. Q, uh, who was in at, you know, pick your bank, uh, was under enormous pressure and spoke up because it was wrong. It, what they were doing was wrong. It was illegal. And this person is getting a, you know, not just getting a monetary award, but we're publicly holding them up as heroes. We don't really have that heroes gallery um, that we can hold up and trumpet and the media can show so that people can say, oh, that person's like me. I'm in that position. I want to do the same thing. There just aren't many. I don't want to call them role models, but there aren't models because we also need to protect their confidentiality for a lot of reasons. And I think that's kind of worked against us. Um, but in the balance of harms, you can see why those decisions were made. But I think that it, you know, and Harry's a great example, but there actually are, you know, I don't know, there's a couple of dozen pretty good examples now of whistleblowers who have been rewarded, um, even though many, if not all, have also suffered some significant pain in the process. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the main focus of uh, one of the things we're working on right now is just getting the word out, you know, doing a better job of educating would be should be whistleblowers to step forward by, you know, yeah. telling stories of previous whistleblowers. So we're, we're in the same boat with you, Dennis, trying to row in the same direction. Well, being cognizant of, of the time, I, I really appreciate you taking time with us today. I, I got some writer's cramp taking notes. Uh, it was good to walk down memory lane with some of these things over, over the years. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, is it okay if we pass along your contact information? Uh, you know, if you get into my email box, you know, good luck getting out of it. You're much better off uh, going through the press or going through on the website because that actually, uh, I have to tell you that unfortunately, there's too many people who have my email that I, I, I probably don't get through 20% of my email at any given point in time. I don't say that to be a jerk. It sounds it sounds like I'm being a jerk, and I don't mean that. Uh, it's it, I haven't quite figured out how to uh, you know figure out how to avoid uh, all the stuff I don't need in my inbox and be able to see what I want to see in my inbox. There's probably a failing of my technology ability. <laughs> uh, www.bettermarkets.org is the website. Make sure you take a look at the uh, the recent conference they held on the Lehman Brothers collapse. Fascinating watch. Uh, Dennis, thanks so much for your time today. Sure. Thanks for having me. And uh, best of luck to everybody in the business. You're, I know you're compensated, but you're doing God's work. We need more whistleblowers. We need more people who know the process, can protect them, and get the results that the country needs. So thank you all to all of you who are doing this day in and day out. Thank you. If you believe you have witnessed fraud against the government or fraud on the financial markets, we encourage you to visit our website at taf.org, where you will find a directory of member attorneys who represent whistleblowers across the country. 
On our website, you will also find additional information about our nation's various whistleblower laws and programs and a way to donate to our organization as we step forward in spreading information about whistleblower programs. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme song is by Connor Chaos. A big thank you to our TAF staff and researchers of James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Max Boldman. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund. The opinions expressed on today's show belong solely to the guest and are not necessarily endorsed by the organization. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Fraud in America.